This is episode number 435 with Erica Green, Manager of Machine Learning Engineering at Etsy. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to this episode of the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Crone, and we're joined today by our very special guest, Erica Green. In this fun and hugely informative episode, Erica provides us with countless valuable pieces of highly actionable guidance on scaling up machine learning model development to a massive scale, machine learning operations, including how to avoid frightening feature drift in production, how to prioritize research and development projects for a large team of data scientists and ML engineers, the three critical areas of expertise ML engineers should strive to master, and whether a PhD is advantageous to professionals who apply machine learning. This episode is particularly well-suited to practicing data scientists or ML engineers who'd like to learn how to scale up their ML models to a massive high-throughput scale. That said, we also have tons of guidance for relative beginners who'd like to know what it takes to be hired as an ML engineer, an extremely in-demand and highly rewarding career specialization in the data science world. Beyond the technical considerations we covered, Erica also drew upon her rich managerial experience to provide us with lots of thoughtful, practical tips for managers who deal with data science or software engineering projects. Wow, so much to learn from this episode. Let's go. All right, Erica, welcome to the show. Wonderful to have you on. We're going to dig right into some meaty topics. So um, we know that you work at Etsy. Tell us about the kinds of problems that you solve at Etsy and tell us about the kind of company that Etsy is as well. Probably many people are aware of it, but you could do a better job explaining it than I could. Sure, thank you again for having me. Excited to be here. So Etsy is a two-sided marketplace for selling and buying uh, vintage and homemade goods, handcrafted goods. And I, the company, I actually know, the, the company is roughly five to 600 engineers, um, a little over wow. a thousand people. Yeah, it's pretty that big. That is it's, 10 times bigger than I would have guessed in my, in like ahead of time. Yes, it's also not really a startup anymore. It is 15 years old. It is based in Brooklyn, New York. And we have offices in San Francisco and Dublin. And yeah, I've been with the company just under a year and a half. I actually worked there eight years ago, right out of graduate school for a year and then have circled back and rejoined Etsy. Um, and I manage a, I manage a team of eight machine learning engineers. We work on their ad system. So Etsy runs an on-site advertising platform where sellers can choose if they want to, to advertise on our site. So we, we reserve real estate on our apps and our website where sellers can advertise and we run essentially like a full ad platform, ad auction, second price um, ad auction uh, between 
between sellers and listings on the site. So my team owns all the machine learning systems that power that auction. Nice. I mean, that sounds obviously there's a lot of companies out there that exist solely for creating these kinds of ad platforms. And so to have that internally, I think it's it's a non-trivial engineering task. Yes, for sure. And it's an interesting problem space because we own we own everything. We're, we're in some ways both the buyer and seller side of the ad auction. And um, and yeah, it, it runs at a, a very large scale. Um, we, you know, Etsy has been very successful. We have a lot of people on our site and, and, and we off, we, we represent our goal is to, our goal, well, we represent essentially both sides, right? We want to make sure that buyers, um, we show them listings that are, are interesting to them, that are relevant to them, that, that help them find the thing that they want to purchase. And then we want our sellers, we want to give them a good return because we know we don't offer them a good return on their ad money. They can easily go and advertise somewhere else. Right. I, I understand. Um, so what kinds of problems do you need to be solving specifically as managing the machine learning engineers on the ad platform at Etsy? So I, I refer to us as like search, but harder. So we have, we have to do the search problem. So basically, you know, when somebody is looking for something on our search, you know, they, they put in a query and the queries are often very funny. I mean, they're like, you know, polka dot, red face mask or something like that. Um, <laughs> we need to return our, our system needs to return 24 listings that are relevant to that query, which is basically exactly the same problem as the search problem. But on top of that, our systems need to price those return a, a price with each of those listings. And so the, the, on-site advertising platform at Etsy, it's called Etsy Ads, is a CPC model or cost per click. So we charge sellers when a buyer clicks on their listing and we charge them a small amount. And that price is not set. It's not the same for everybody. Um, it's dynamic. And the way we want to set that price such that that sellers, we call it a bid, even though they're not actively bidding, we bid on their behalf, but they bid higher if there's if their listing is a really good match for the buyer and really good match for the query, um, and they bid lower otherwise, right? Because that's how you ensure them a good return on their money. You want to you want to bid up when you're very very confident that your listing is a good fit, and we want to bid down when you're not. And so so that's based, those are the high level problems that we're solving. So we're solving the ranking problem just basically classic search, and then we're solving the bidding problem. I understand. It makes perfect sense. So in the beginning of what you were explaining there, when you're saying we have to return a price, it isn't the price of the item, which is just something that's stored uh, in a database. It's it's that dynamic price for the cost per click that you need to calculate on the fly and figure out how um, buyers should be bidding for this based on how relevant the search is to them in particular. That does sound like an interesting problem. Yeah, sorry, right. It's not the price of the listing, it's the um, cost, I guess, the bid price. People just refer to it as the CPC, the cost per click, but the ad world is littered with terrible acronyms. Three-letter so, acronyms, the yeah. TLA. <laughs> yeah. I know it all yeah. too well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so tell us, um, so, so some major problems that you've had to solve in the machine learning realm. Um, I know we talked about some of these already before, so things like migrating models to TensorFlow, and real-time neural networks for doing for solving these kind of problems. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So we we have two kind of core modeling tasks that we we work on. So one is click-through rate prediction, which is you know very classic ad tech 
um, problem and we use that to do kind of ranking. So um, if we think that a listing, if, a, if showing a particular listing to a particular buyer during a particular time um, when they're looking for a particular thing, we think that that listing is going to have a high click-through rate. That's essentially an analogous to it being relevant. There's a model that we use to, to do that prediction and we do that in real time for every for 600 listings for every query. Um, so that is one. And then another one is conversion rate prediction. So on the bidding side, we want to bid up when we think that somebody is going to actually purchase it. If they click, you know, what is the chance that they're actually going to purchase the item? So that's a conversion rate prediction problem. And they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. They're trained on you know, historic data of what people have clicked on and purchased in the past. Um, and we, like many companies, have sort of gone through the progression of, you know, start with, the, you know, Etsy's been around for a long time. This ad system has been around for eight years or something. Um, you know, originally they were using linear regression, logistic regression to do that. They migrated to, you know, trees. This is before my time. Uh, in the past year, we've migrated to neural networks and, and, and moved the entire system over to TensorFlow. And each of those has been sort of a, a boost up in performance in accuracy. Um, and, and we've seen that. And so, so what, there's just the classic problems of like make models that are, more accurate, but then there's the bigger system. Um, I don't know how do you how do you set up the auction? How do you weigh off this conversion rate and click through rate um, objectives? Um, how do you scale the system? There's engineering problems there. Um, how do you measure success? Um, how do you weigh these different outcomes for these different stakeholders? So those are the there there is just the like make the model better problem, but then there's also the like how do you how do you tune and run the entire system? Yeah, it must be. I hadn't thought about how if you have two different objective functions, one for a click-through rate and then the other for purchases, to somehow combine those in a way. And maybe like, is there some kind of meta objective function, or is that kind of that's something that you have to make decisions on, uh, kind of outside of the models? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We that we don't run it as a meta objective function. I made that um, word up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you could. I thought about it. I think when I first joined the, I first joined the team like a year and a half ago, and I, you know, it's a fairly complicated system, and the engineers in the team were, I was like, I pulled them into, you know, conference rooms for hours at a time and had them whiteboard the whole system out for me, and and I remember like one of the first things I said was, why are we running this like an ad, like an action, <laughs> like, isn't it just a kind of black box, right? You know, Query comes in and we need, need to return listings and prices, but why do we need to have all these different right parts of the system? And um, part of that is historic that the Etsy used to allow the the sellers to pick their CPCs, so they would say, you know, I am willing to pay seven cents for a click, or I'm only willing to pay I'm willing to pay up to twenty cents for a click, or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and for various reasons, uh, moved the company decided to move everything onto this auto bidding system, but you know. In the past, it had to be possible to set a, a CPC, a bid price. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it doesn't need to be run in different ways. It could be run as sort of a joint optimization problem. Um, but there's a sort of efficiency um, to doing it that way. And I think if you think of the bidding system as uh, separate, if you thought of there being like a church state divide between the bidding side and the the ranking side, then um, certainly it is it is optimal for Etsy for the person for the company running the auction if you, if we rank based on you know bid times predicted click through rate um, that is like sort of weighted chance that something is going to be clipped and and that's sort of the 
revenue optimal thing, but we don't, we own both sides. So we really are trying to, to, to both get good return and good. I, good. I totally understand. I think it Let's makes think. sense to have those as, as, as separate models. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover over two and a half thousand video tutorials, more than 200 hours of content and 30 plus courses, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Um, that, that migration from um, decision trees uh, to neural networks and TensorFlow, um, that's something that happened since you joined. Uh, was that an obvious decision? Was it always something that you were confident would be successful or uh, was it easy? It wasn't easy. Um, very few things are easy. I, <laughs> I pushed for it. Yes, I, I think um, this world where every model maps one-to-one to a library and then then you need to figure out how to scale that library. It doesn't, it, it makes doing model development very slow. And we had sort of, the company had sort of been going along that line, right? We had a library we were using for logistic regression, and then it was a new library for tree-based models. And then if you wanted to use neural networks, you would need a new library. And so that meant you needed integration at all these points in the process of training the models and evaluating the models and then serving the models. And it, yeah, it just made the, the sort of full development process so slow. And the beauty of TensorFlow and the beauty of uh, PyTorch, and I honestly don't have such a strong opinion other than Etsy runs on GCP on Google's cloud. And so, you know, it just it fits better with all the Google if you stay in the Google world. Yeah, um, yeah of course, you know, you have a lot of modeling flexibility, right? They're sort of their their frameworks and languages, not just single implementations of models. And so that to me was a I was I was very convinced. That makes perfect sense to me. And that is one of the great things about TensorFlow is that it has so many uh, modules that allow you to be training locally or on one uh, on a single server and then using TensorFlow serving to have um, your in-production deployments run across a large number of servers. I imagine with the kind of scale you have, that is critical, you know, real-time uh, bidding and calculating these CPCs. Uh, yeah, I, I imagine that kind of, those performance issues must have been top of mind the whole time. And so yeah. that decision well, makes a lot of sense to me. One thing I, I will say is that at some point we were thinking like, oh, TensorFlow has all these, you know, of course, people use it for, for neural network and deep learning, but they actually do have implementations of other types of models in the, you know, in the library and the framework. And so they do have gradient 
you know, boosted decision trees and we're like, yeah. oh, hey, maybe that, like, this could be great, win-win, right? Um, if somebody wants to continue using these tree models, we could stay within the TensorFlow universe. And so one thing we tried early on was try to get, trying to get it to work and had such, such problems getting it to work. Um, I think it just isn't well-maintained and doesn't work right. with AI platform training well. And we were back and forth, I think, for months and months and months with the Google reps trying to figure <laughs> out how to get this working, how to get it working with hyperparameter tuning. And so I, I think the the real dream of only being only using TensorFlow for everything, um, even the sort of things it's not primarily used for. Um, right. I don't know. I would I would check that out first before before trying before I don't know <laughs> convincing yourself that it's actually going to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I I would have actually assumed that those kinds of extra libraries for decision trees would work. So that's a really good tip uh, to look into that if that's one of the key reasons why you're thinking about using TensorFlow. Because um, I actually, to my students, I often say, you know, you don't think of TensorFlow, you shouldn't think of TensorFlow and PyTorch as deep learning libraries. Right. You should think of them as automatic differentiation libraries. So right. libraries that allow you to descend a gradient and optimize objective functions. Um, so find the right cost per click. And it should work across any kind of model. Um, but of course, we get used to uh, you know, you don't want to have to code up a random forest algorithm from scratch um, in TensorFlow if you could do it much more easily with XGBoost or something. Um, so that is a great pro tip. Yeah, I think it's just um, this universe is changing so quickly, right? So, it, you know, TensorFlow 1, TensorFlow 2 to these different versions of it. And then if you're running it on, if you're running, I don't know what they're using for your students were using for training, but we were, we've been using AI platform, which is just, um, you know, a Docker, you know, a Docker image with, um, with, you know, TensorFlow built in and, and um, NumPy and whatnot, and then you can run it in the cloud and train a model. Um, but that has certain version, you know, certain versions um, pinned and you get into this and then these, these not very common implementations of models that are not used necessarily. You know, Google is not great at backwards, keeping things backwards compatible. And so just, it's not that they never worked, but you know, they, they don't necessarily work for the setup that you have. Yeah, this is, you know, version issues are like, when, pe when people ask me, they're like, are you ever worried that machine learning is going to put you out of a job? I'm like, no, absolutely not. Cause there's like all these version issues that a machine can possibly figure out. Um, yeah. Maybe they'll figure out how to model perfectly, but they won't be able to get everything up and running and installed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although uh, that's not really the fun part of the job, but yeah, that's what we spend all the time on. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I, I think that that doing it the way you're doing is is the best way to do it to have everything inside a Docker container and maintain the versions. But then, absolutely, when you get into these situations where you have a big version update, um, we had at my company. Um, a couple of years ago, we made the switch from Python 2 to Python 3, and it was a huge engineering undertaking to make sure that our production systems were going to work as well or better um, in Python 3. And you know, those are the biggest kinds of changes. But even as you say, TensorFlow 1 to TensorFlow 2, actually, if you'd been, did you did you start right off the bat when you were at Etsy with TensorFlow 2, or did you have to make that TensorFlow 1 2 transition as well? We had to make the transition at the time. AI platform training, I think, did not support TensorFlow 2. And so we, we did it in TensorFlow 1. And so we have had to make that transition. And it has been much more painful than I expected. Like we have, 
trained models in TensorFlow 2, just made the small code changes to make it compatible, you know, with APIs, and then found that the predictions for every, every, we were predicting on listings, for every listing was shifted by, you know, 0.15 or something like that. And wow. exactly, exactly shifted for everything. And we, that's, we, that's, you'd never expect that. Like, if things break, you're like, okay. But yeah. for things to work, but be off by a little, that is bizarre. Yeah, it's really bizarre. And we, because we run this bidding side, you know, the system is a bidding side of the system and a click rate side of the system. And then we we take these two different kind of numbers coming from either side and we you know, multiply them together and do a little logic on them. Actually, them shifting um, <laughs> is important as bad. Um, right. And so, yeah, we spent a lot of time. I mean, there's a, there's a page on, tens, you know, the TensorFlow Google website of all the things that have changed between TensorFlow 1 and TensorFlow 2. And some of them are very low level, very frustrating, like the mini... Uh, the calculate the loss as the average, the sum of the losses of all the examples in each mini batch instead of the average or vice mm. versa, but it changed. And this is the kind of, you know, in the atom optimizer, this is the kind of stuff that um, you don't expect to be changing. Um, if anyone from Google is listening, maybe they could tell me why that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I always think of it in my mind as, as an API change, right? Of like, how you're interacting with things behind the scenes. I did not even know that. That is usually important to know. Maybe I need to go back and look at some uh, changes that I made in the past from TensorFlow 1 to TensorFlow 2 because I was not aware of the things under the hood like that, like how values are being calculated were changing. So, hmm. Yeah. Note that down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the backwards compatibility stuff is, uh, it is important when running, you know, enterprise an enterprise service and and we run in Google, we run in Google Cloud at Etsy. And so, and we have been increasingly using Google managed services um, on my team. You know, it's different across different teams of the company, but um, all these all these different pieces fitting together, you know, data flow and AI platform training and flow and um, the hyperparameter tuning service that's another, you know, managed service. And um, they're great and they're incredibly powerful, but but the 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 versions change very quickly. Yeah, so something that you've mentioned now, um, so our managed services and the you, you talked about the AI platform. I'm actually not very familiar with that. Are those the same thing? Are they related? Oh, yeah, sure. I just, I meant managed services as like a broad category of um, these cloud-based services where you're not, you know, you're not hosting your database. Even if you're sort of renting the server space, right. you're not running the database, you know, right, um, right, they're right. running the database and then you're, you're calling out to it or using it. So um, um, Dataflow is their, is their uh, service for doing large-scale computation on data, parallelized computation on data. Um, and and then they have this service called AI Platform Training. It's called AI Platform Training. It used to have a different name, and I can't remember. But basically, you can. it's a wrapper. So if you have a Python script, script that trains your model, you can you can essentially call that same script and you can either run it locally, but the real benefit is that you can run it, you can run it in a Docker container locally very easily. They're, they're a Docker container with all their pre-installed, you know, data science libraries, or you can run it in the cloud. And you can pick hardware to run it on. So you can run it on GPUs, you can run it on big machines, lots of memory or smaller machines, 
Um, and you can see there's some web UI, you can log in and see like how it's progressing, see the logs from what's going on. Um, and you can basically run any arbitrary or as a new Python script, as long as you have the libraries. Um, and you can add different libraries if you wanted them to include in the Docker container. Um, and this is great. This means that if you know, this this means that you don't have to SSH into some you know some computer somewhere. Um, you don't have to keep that computer those resources running, right? You can scale up and scale down, um, and you can run against lots of your hardware, TPUs, and GPUs, and whatnot. Um, so it's been great. And the the other real benefit of this service is that they have they have the capability to do hyperparameter tuning. So if you can run your model and train it on the AF platform, then you can run it a hundred times. Um, you just specify a config with the arguments that you want to tune, and it will even it will even do something smart, some kind of Asian search of the parameter space and give you all the runs and give you all the metrics. Yeah, I love yeah. that. I also, anytime I come across uh, a Bayesian way of doing anything, including hyperparameter tuning, I think, that's a smart way to do it. Yeah. Bayesian, it always, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's the smartest way we could possibly be doing this. Um, well, that's awesome. I actually, I didn't know about that AI platform and I'm going to check it out because I spend way too much time SSHing into servers that I spin up on GCP. Yeah, yeah, I think it's great, right. Um, I had a, a big argument with my partner about this. He runs a research lab and he's like, he just <laughs> he does these like, you know, computers and he has his students SSH into it. And I was like, this is crazy, you can't scale that. Um, but he doesn't have like, um, you know, hundreds of students, but I, you know, I'm interested in making sure that our, the tooling that we have for mo you know, doing model development and training is scalable to, to very large teams. And so um, I can't, I don't want everyone SSHing into their own personal servers. This is, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Google, for another yeah. dinner ruined. <laughs> yeah. Nice work. Um, all right, so that was hugely interesting um, about the kinds of problems that you're solving at Etsy and these migration issues, diving deep into them, the AI platform. Uh, another thing that I would love for you to talk about is interesting failures. So, for example, data quality <laughs> issues that you've had. Yeah, data quality issues. Um, Fascinating. So, right. So, I uh, we've had some interesting failures. I can I can chat about them. They're they're the the most interesting ones recently have fallen into the category of um, you know a feature distribution changes, and we just didn't have the monitoring in place. You know, this is over a year ago now. Right. It feels, still feels traumatic um, to to identify it, and then it was just very very difficult to track down. And um, basically, it looked like all of a sudden performance in production, the production online metric, right, uh, starts going down, right? Like all of a sudden, our less people are clicking on our app. Um, that's strange. And and then trying to figure out what's going on, identifying that the you know offline model model accuracy has decreased, and then trying to figure out what. What happened? You know, like we didn't change the model code. Um, we didn't change the model. What could happen? And finally traced it down to one feature where the the it had been assumed that the distribution of that feature was never going to change, and um, it was sort of coming from a different system, the output of a different system. It was an incorrect assumption, but I you know don't blame the person for for making it. And and the distribution changed by 10x, and we were training these models on 30 wow. days of data we were training it every night and so all of a sudden you know the the this one feature is essentially becoming incredibly noisy right and 
it was unfortunately a useful feature. So the model had put a high weight on it and um, it was totally messing up the predictions and was messing up the model. And it was a really difficult problem to recover from because we have these you know, data pipelines that generate our training data. They're um, fairly slow to rerun. Um, rerunning them on all of the data is expensive. You know, for 30 days, it's expensive. We can't really recreate the old, <laughs> can't go back to the system and make the change back. And so we ended up just um, enough time had passed that we had enough days of data that running training a model on the newest data that didn't have distributions from didn't have this feature from two different distributions that that model did did enough good enough essentially we switched to that um, but these silent silent changes in distributions of um, the features coming in is like keeps me up at night we now have much more monitoring <laughs> we have a long way to go um, and that's one of those things that's I put. I put solidly in the kind of ML engineering problems and not kind of traditional data science problems, right? It's like, mm. um, I had didn't know this term until the last year, but this oh, field is ML auto. Ah, damn. Were you going to guess it? No, oh. I, well, I was going to get, because we've been talking about features changing, and I thought you were going to say feature drift, specifically. Oh, drift. no. No, just like, the area, the field, ML ops. Yeah. Which is like DevOps or ML, right? Mm -hmm. This is a classic ML ops big problem. Um, yeah. yeah, I love that you're talking about feature drift and ML ops because on a recent episode of the podcast with Ben Taylor uh, from Data Robot, we were talking about this. We were talking about uh, trends, data science trends that we think are going to accelerate in 2021. Mm -hmm. And these were two of the main topics that we talked about. So it's great to have you reinforcing that these are um, <laughs> yeah, these are the things that are happening in the real world. Um, and yeah, so I think I think probably you've done a, a, a thorough job of explaining what this is for our listeners, but um, the feature drift is this phenomenon that is common in the real world. So if you if you've been a data scientist that has worked with you know some classic, um, data science data set like the MNIST digits or the ImageNet database, the, the data don't change. So you, you can, over decades, in the case of MNIST, come up with gradually better and better models for um, handwriting prediction. And for things like handwriting, probably that doesn't change systematically over time, though you could imagine that maybe the sensors that you're using for reading hand, handwritten digits, could like, that could change all of a sudden at some point or maybe gradually yeah. Um, and so basically in the real world, you don't have a fixed data set when you're at Etsy and you're dealing with products that are constantly changing, um, you're dealing with behavior that's constantly changing. And so a, a model that is built for one set of data and eventually not fit the data as well as it could because the underlying features change and it sounds like in, in this case, something changing by 10x, one of the inputs, um, it's obviously gonna make a, a big impact on the model given that, it, yeah, like you said, it's it was it was weighted highly. Yeah, I think like uh, slow drifts are, you know, don't keep me up at night. We, re we retrain our models fairly regularly and, and over a fairly short time period, I mean, several weeks or months, um, but the real, the thing that keeps me up at night is that there is some feature which is tied to some tied to 
not a direct user input, right? Like user preferences are changing or something like that, but it's tied to another system and that system changes. And it's not that everyone, you know, Etsy is a large company. There's lots of engineers and they don't think, you know, people are not aware that their data, the data that they are generating is being used to train models, right? Generally, those things are, those those worlds are fairly separate. Um, another example is like if a, I don't know, this hasn't happened, but very well could, like if we're using some taxonomy to, you know, or some structured data, we're asking um, our sellers to fill out about our listings. And then there's some team in charge of making that better, or easier and make a change. And, you know, many layers downstream from the from that change, um, the, yeah, our, our features have, are suddenly radically different. Um, that that is the kind of thing that, is, that really is worrisome. So what keeps you up at night is somebody not telling you that something major has changed. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's not a scalable approach of everybody just like <laughs> really make a change that impacts one of our features. But um, yeah, we should have monitoring and alerting and et cetera, et cetera, to identify one of Exactly. That's what we were talking about with Ben Taylor on that recent episode as well, was that you can monitor. So this is something for, for listeners. So if you're worried, if you too are losing sleep, uh, you can get a good night's rest yet again by having monitoring in place and making sure that the distributions are fitting particular parameters that you were expecting, yeah. assumptions you were making. And if the features drift away from those expect distributions sufficiently, then you'll be informed. <laughs> Um, awesome. So tell us about how you decide what to work on. So, you know, when you're, when you're, yeah, how, how do you, how do you decide as a team? How do you, uh, when, when you're presented with particular problems to solve, you decide which ones are worthwhile, which ones are worth tackling? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's challenging. I think it's challenging in the same way that doing product development is challenging, right? Like you're given a problem. A product, there's a million things you could change, but what's the high opportunity versus the cost? And I think I think a lot of times teams with data scientists or teams with ML systems that the people um, I don't these are fairly technical algorithmic systems, right? And that um, the way the way I have seen this at other companies is that. The way, the way they decide what to do is that sort of the people on the ground, you know, go out and read papers or read blog posts or listen to podcasts about data scientists and hear something that's funny. <laughs> God, and then, I've got to make yeah. sure I get some, <laughs> some, some feature drift sensors in. That's yeah, a project yeah. I've got to try to... Um, and then they come back and they kind of get excited about it and they write up a... Or in, the, in a better case, they write up a proposal. In the less great, great case, they just start coding it. Um, and then you sort of have a hodgepodge of, um, you know, darts that you've thrown at a dartboard and some of them work out and some of them don't work out. And um, you can sort of get lucky in that approach and where more work out than not. But it's, it, yeah, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't engender a lot of confidence, you know, as a manager um, to just be like, well, we have, you know, eight, eight random chances and um, we're hoping that, <laughs> you know, some of them hit. Um yeah, so I, I don't know. I've tried to take a little bit more of a strategic approach to this, and we've actually been running a discovery process, you know, not dissimilar from what people do for product discovery, mm. and kind of a classic, um, I don't know, design thinking type product discovery thing uh, process. And so, yeah, what does that look like? That looks like we 
we brainstorm high level areas that we could go into. So you know, should we be, um, what about incorporating more image, you know, image processing as a broad scope thing? What about more personalization? What about um, some kind of approximate nearest neighbor? Or what about, you know, just like better candidate set? You know, can we do some more, more sophisticated things on candidate set? Um, and we brainstorm eight of them roughly. And then we have do a week or a little bit more of um, where the goal we split into teams and, you know, several people on each one of these areas. And the output is the goal output is a one pager, which is a like go, no, go recommendation and an argument about why go, no, go. And so what we're looking to do is not to try to get as far in the, as far as possible in the, implementation of it, you know, it's to pick the areas of highest risk, pick the areas that we don't know the most about, and go out and try to get answers to those questions. And so that might look like prototyping it, it might look like running a load test, it might look like going and talking to somebody who's worked in that area, it might go, you know, or inside or outside the company, it might look like reading papers. And so we spend, spent, yeah, like a week and a half in aggregate on that. Um, twice a year or once every three quarters or something. And out of that come large, I would say, like they come bets, bigger bets, right? Like we're going to take a bet on whatever images because why? Because we have a one pager and we can make that argument to you. And currently no one asked me to do it. <laughs> we have them ready. <laughs> um, but it's for it's for us. It's to convince ourselves. And so um, we still read papers. We have a reading group and we still get excited about fuzzy things. But we try. Yeah, we try to be a little bit more strategic about it. I love it. That all sounds so amazing. I like I'm instantly like that's the kind of thing that I'm like, I would love to be a part of that process. Wow, that sounds like so much fun. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but then you have to hold yourself to it. That's the harder part. Um, right. yeah, and then you're then like, you oh, this is this <laughs> didn't turn out like what I wanted it to be. Well, or just like, what I really want to do is implement that paper I read last week. <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's the whole point is to make sure that, um, that, that the work that your team is doing is grounded in practical business realities, um, even when it's using, you know, potentially some, uh, some shiny new state of the art approach, um, making sure that there's a good basis for that. I think that's brilliant. I, don't, I, I think that that kind of thinking doesn't happen enough. I think it's great that you're spearheading it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I absolutely brilliant. Thank you for telling us about that because it's, it's, uh, yeah, another action item that I should be coming out of this, uh, out of this podcast and, uh, doing. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I basically think if like, if I was my boss and I was like, <laughs> pretty skeptical of what I was doing, how would I convince myself? You know, and you can't a hundred percent, this is the kind of work it's, it's different in, in that way than classic engineering work, not that engineering work, classic engineering work is no risk, right? But if a lot of things you kind of, you know, you could do, if it might be, it take, might take more time, it might take more money. Um, there's certainly Almost, bad uh, engineering decisions. <laughs> if you if you chose React versus choosing Angular, you can make a website in, you know, in it. And, and certainly one might be a better kind of answer, but you're not going to knock it to the finish line. And with this, this data science stuff, yeah, I mean, like, you really, it might not work, right? Like, and, um, and so there is, I think, an inherent kind of higher level of risk, but I think you can do things to try to mitigate that risk. So sorry. 
Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, another one of the uh, trends for 2021 that we talked about in this recent episode with Ben Teller, which was that we need to be focusing on there's it's all too easy with AI and machine learning projects to uh, have them spiral out of control um, yeah. and not lead to any uh, tangible outcomes. And and that's going to happen some proportion of the time. And um, Elon Musk recently said, uh, a, I, I'm going to like completely butcher the quote, but it was the idea of if you're not failing, you're not like pushing research and development. Um, mm-hmm. You're not doing something innovative unless some proportion of the time you're failing. So we have to accept that. But like following a process that you outlined, Erica, we can be being thoughtful about those risks. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that this is a really great idea. I love it. So we should also um, talk about, I had a really interesting conversation with you recently about um, engineering at scale. So I guess we touched on this a little bit now earlier on by talking about um, the Google AI platform, but um, what do you do at Etsy to allow the models that you built uh, be able to do real-time bidding on your huge platform? Yeah, so most of the credit, almost all the credit for this actually goes to a team that I don't run. Uh, we have a really wonderful team we call ML Platform, and they um, they own the infrastructure and build the infrastructure and maintain it to serve models um, in real time. and um, and we build on top of that, and we we rely on that and use that. And I I would recommend you talk to them. <laughs> so maybe they're the expert on that particular thing. But you know, yeah. you know, Kubernetes cluster, and we're um, right. scaling it up, and et cetera, et cetera. I um, I I what I say the, the stuff I think about more because this team has this part solved for, basically. Um, I think about more sort of model development at scale Perfect. and ML yeah. systems at scale um, instead of the, the infrastructure to do it. And so some things that are hard to scale, I have seen, you know, working in this industry at different places. So one, just collaborating on, a, on an experiment or on a model, um, I think it tends to be really difficult, right? And it's something that there's not, I think, a, a lot of guidance um, or resources to do. So we often see people just working in silos, not because they're bad collaborators or bad communicators, but because the tooling to help to, to do it collaboratively just isn't there in the same way it is for just for classic software engineering, right? So um, examples include that are hard, like you try 10 different things. Um, how do you do that? Are they different branches? Are they different commits? You know, how yeah. do you, where do you record it? Do you record it? We yeah. just have these spreadsheets that are like, you know, 150 lines long of every experiment. Only the person who wrote that spreadsheet could possibly decipher, you know, like you're, you if, start writing with your hand, if they're lucky. <laughs> how do you map it back to the, the commit in code that did it? Um, so all of that is hard to scale. Um, you end up writing a bunch of code that could be shareable, but isn't because there's like, I don't know, I just think that the kind of best practices aren't really there yet. So we migrated everything to TensorFlow. We're writing all of these transforms in TensorFlow Transform now. Um, and we are just writing them for our team, right? But there's lots of other teams building models. And so I've been, we've been talking at the company about having a shared TensorFlow Transform repo and having it be pulled in as an external library. Um, that just takes it is, I think, the right thing to do, but it takes some tooling, right, and commitment. 
um, from these different teams such that every time that if there's sort of a canonical transformation that uses some canonical data from Etsy, um, or we just want to, you know, it's a re-implementation, we have an in-house tool for featurization right now. There's kind of lots of teams that are going to want to re-implement the kind of standard featurization um, functions that this in-house tool has. Um, we should do it once, <laughs> we should do it 10 times. Um, so we've been using, yeah, we've been, I've been thinking a lot about third-party, you know, or not third-party, but just offline experiment tracking tooling. And there's now several companies that have offerings in this space. Um, we just started working with one. And that, I think, that I, I see as a trend um, in 2021 in the oh, future. Good. Because, yeah, the spreadsheets spreadsheets are no, no good. Um, yeah. You really want to do it to scale. So, I mean, if you're comfortable saying, what, what was the vendor that you ended up going with? There's lots of startups out there that do this kind of uh, ML flow management. And I think ML flow is either a name of one of the libraries or one of the yeah, that ML flow, weights and biases is another one. And then mm. Comet is another one. Um, we ended up going with Comet. Um, but I think it's one of those things that, that zero to anything is like night and day, right? It's like if you weren't using version control and you started using version control, um, that's the that's the, it's like night and day and such a huge win. Um, and then, yeah, these different companies do have different specialties and um, in that space. But I, I think we had nothing and now we have something. And that is, that is um, a huge game changer. Um, yeah. And then the other things are just like canonical data sets. I saw this at um, Google has an internal Kaggle um, service and you can put up a data set or a task and have people compete uh, internally. Great idea. Um, uh, and that's really cool. You, you know, that's really it, making it easy to make it easy to look up with a sort of canonical, basically recreate baselines for these different models, right? Like Etsy's a big company, but we don't actually have so many different tasks, you know, ML tasks that we're, um, we're, we're training models for and making it possible that an, like an intern could come in or someone in their free time or something like that could say, hey, I wonder how well this thing works for like this task um, and and freeze a training set and freeze a test set and then have all the different metrics for, you know, the scoreboard or something internally um, makes it possible for people to, to kind of try out ideas really quickly. That's a great idea. That's brilliant. You are providing so many amazing applicable tips for me and I assume many of the listeners as well. This is brilliant. Um, so we've talked about uh, applied ML, the problems that you're tackling. We've talked about um, scaling up machine learning, if not machine learning engineering, though we touched on it a little. Um, and so now I'd love to just kind of hear about, um, you know, how how your working day is. So like, you know, how you manage your team, what your day is like. Um, I'd love to hear that kind of thing. Sure. Um, I'm like the best at time management or process. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to provide. That is, that is a shock given everything <laughs> you've said so far. That is um, really surprising. Let's see. In the, in the um, COVID world, I and my team have been trying to do as many make as many decisions async as possible and have a few team meetings as possible. So we do do a daily standup so we can all see each other's faces um, and just really, you know, do 
as quick as possible, kind of what's going on. Um, and then we try to do um, try to do meetings when there's like actual decisions to be made, right? So like we are refactoring some, you know, all the the repository where all models live and trying to we're doing big refactor. And so there'll be ad hoc meetings about how do we structure that. Um, and I let the team run those as much as possible. I don't necessarily need to be involved, but we used to have sort of like a modeling meeting and an infrastructure meeting, you know, regularly. And people just don't like being on video chat and, you know, when we're all at our desk and we can't really get it. So we canceled all those meetings. Um, so yeah, small, I've organized, and I think people are happier. I mean, they've told me that when they're working collaboratively, I think that like even more so in this remote age that, you know, even if somebody could do something by themselves before and not feel lonely and isolated because, you know, other people are around them, they could talk about it over lunch and stuff like that. It feels so much more remote and isolated now. So even though I know they can do it by themselves, I'll put two people on a project or three people on a project um, so that we can slice it up smaller and it just is more collaborative. Um, I spend a lot of my day, I do one-on-ones with my team every week, um, my manager, and then with my um, kind of partner managers in the ad space. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, we run a reading group um, every other week, which is really fun. And we read kind of applied ML papers, like KDD type papers. um, Mm -hmm. um, And it's open to anybody at the company. So I run that. And I mostly give feedback or iterate on like project proposals. So I, I really care a lot about things being written in writing um, and, you know, small to large, and then we'll iterate, you know, kind of asynchronously on ideas in written documents. And so that's my, that's my preference. So, so in one-on-one meetings with people and then um, then constantly kind of iterating on ideas in paper, I miss whiteboards desperately. I know that there are these, services that try to recreate them oh, i've yeah. not found anything to be remotely nah. satisfactory i can't wait to go back to the office Same. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and it i think the whiteboard thing it isn't just because okay like yeah i mean thinking of like in your head like okay i need to design an application that emulates a whiteboard it seems like comically easy right but it's never going to to solve the so uh i i, I would run maybe every other week, uh, what I would call a local science conference with my team, mm-hmm. where um, we would go, we book a separate room. So we were all, you know, clustered together in one little office together. Um, but for these local science conferences, you know, it was a big to do. It was like, we'd prepare, I, I would work with team members on what they were going to be talking about at the conference. And then we'd book a separate room It mm-hmm. had a big whiteboard, it didn't have a screen. Nobody brought laptops, we brought notebooks, and we had the whiteboard. And it's that presence with the problems that people are presenting that you can't recapitulate in the same way that you can't recapitulate real world meetings because real world meetings, because people are inherently distracted. You can't sit people at a computer which has all of the internet on it and all of their other applications that could be lighting up in the background and maybe they're actually lighting up, though you know you could ask people to turn notifications off or have only this one screen open. But it's still it's just the habit of this being the device that does all of that other stuff. You can't be focused like you are in a real world meeting around whiteboard. And so, anyway, so I, yeah, all these sort of hot. I mean, this is like you know very 
hot topic to have a hot take on, like the future of work, the future of remote work, the future of flexible work, right? There's a million big pieces on this. Um, yeah, Etsy did a survey of, you know, do you want to go back to the office? What would you feel comfortable with? You know, they're trying to figure it out, just like any company's trying to figure out, and they're doing it in a really thoughtful way. Um, and and yeah, my my I, I very much appreciate it, but I and I don't think they're going to get rid of their office. But um, yeah, I was like, if if we don't have office, I can't imagine long term staying in a company where there's no in person. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I I certainly hope that we'll go back to having an office. We got rid of our offices in New York. Uh, all, I think all of our other locations around the world, we we kept the office. But in New York, with the way it turned out, with a, a lease rolling over, it was like the perfect mm, timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, we we're like, all right, let's put everything in storage and wait until this is over. And now there is some discussion about us not going back into offices being possible. And um, I think that um, you know, there's other parts with my company. There's other parts of the business where that that might be totally possible and we you know our productivity is off the charts our revenues yeah. is uh better than ever profitability is better than ever um so remote working is working but uh for for my stuff that i'm doing with my team the science r d um it is not the same and i think at least having a couple of days a week where you know maybe yeah. that maybe that's that's the the hybrid future uh that yeah that I can imagine working well yeah, I have found that the execution is very, you know, productivity of execution mm-hmm. is not affected and it might even be better off remote, but coming up with new ideas is harder. Yep. Preaching to the choir, Erica. All right. Um, so speaking of working with you, um, I know that you are hiring or Etsy is hiring for yes. data scientist and ML engineer roles right now. So what are the kinds of things that you're looking for in people that you hire or, you know, how could people be looking to get hired with Etsy or even more generally just tips you have for data scientists and ML engineers out there? Right. Etsy is hiring. Um, the, right. Etsy is hiring. You can apply through the website, et cetera, et cetera. You can reach out and to me. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Yeah. Great. Um, advice about getting hired at Etsy or getting hired in general. So, I don't know how broadly applicable this is in general, um, but but for me, I think this area of machine learning engineering is really interesting. I think it's one of these areas that didn't have a name for a, you know a long time. It's fairly new, and what it means and what the skill set required is still fairly amorphous. It's sort of like data engineering or something. Like, what does that mean? Are you a DBA? Or are you? Um, you're not a DBA, but it is, it's taken a while for that to sort of mature. And the same thing for machine learning engineering. And I think of it as three things. I think of it as uh, data engineering, back-end software engineering, and then machine learning kind of modeling knowledge. And to me, all three of those are important, but you often can't find people who have expertise in all those three things, which is fine. And so I think of building a team that that is strong in all of those, but not everyone necessarily has to be strong in all of those. And, but they certainly have to be interested. So I don't, I don't want um, hard lines between, you know, I just do the modeling or I just do the data engineering. Um, I, I like to hire people who are 
honest about what their background is and what they're good at, and then passionate about and excited about learning the other stuff. And so um, happy to hire people who have strong ML data science backgrounds, but, you know, excited and eager to learn the software side and the engineering side. And I'm happy to hire people who have strong software backgrounds and, you know, took some Coursera classes and are excited to learn the ML side. That is such a beautiful answer, just like the whole rest of this uh, podcast has been such clear and um, actionable um, uh, items for, for the audience. I love the way that you broke that down into those three categories. That makes perfect sense to me. And I think that th that idea of being interested in all three um, and being able to um, you know, dabble or at least understand what other people are uh, uh, talking about in that space. And maybe over time, you know, maybe over the course of a decade or multi-decade long machine learning engineering career, somebody can really master all three of these areas. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you say, very difficult to find people who are strong in all three right off the bat. And so, yeah, so you, you weren't sure whether that was going to be great advice for just Etsy or, or more generally. I think that that is great advice, um, generally speaking, for ML engineer roles. And even more generally, I think that it's never going to hurt if you're applying for a data engineering or a data science role and you're interested in all three of those things. Um, let me, yeah, data engineering was the first, backend engineering was the second, and then machine learning is the third. All three of those things are more and more and more important as the amount of data that we have on the planet is growing exponentially every year. And that is just going to happen more and more and more going forward with you know 5G sensors everywhere. Um, and connect, better connectivity, cheaper storage, cheaper compute. So, you know, as even as a data scientist, being able to handle some of that of the backend engineering, the data engineering is going to be critical. Going yeah. Forward. Nice. And you mentioned to me that you had some thoughts on um, diversity in hiring as well. Do you want to share those? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I would love for there to be more women. Um, and. Um, and black and Hispanic um, engineers and machine learning engineers and data scientists. I care deeply about it. I think cares deeply about it. Um, we could have many, many long conversations about it. Um, I think that the, the, I guess one thing I'll say here because it's such a complicated and interesting topic is that I heard this piece of advice recently, which has really stuck with me, which is about sort of this idea of you know, growth mindset and, and letting hiring people for potential, not necessarily experience, only experience, right? That if we only hire people for experience, which I see so often happening, right? And it is, you know, as a manager, you want, you hire someone who's, who's not good. It's really painful, right? It's a painful, painful process to do, um, to sort of try to help them. And then if it's never going to work out, to manage them out or put them on a performance review plan. So people tend to be very conservative, right? Of, looking for people who have exactly done the thing that you want them to do. And that feels the safest so many times. Um, but, but if you want to hire underrepresented minorities um, into these roles, you have to, there's not, there's not enough people who have um, exactly the ex these experiences. And so, but there's tons of people who have something similar and have a ton of potential. And, um, and this, and I, I heard the advice. I, of what to ask, you know, what do you ask? How do you, how do you evaluate potential? It's much easier to evaluate experience, right? It's like, 
these behavioral interview questions, right? Tell me about a time when you had a model that the feature distribution shifted and you had to make it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but how do you how do you evaluate for potential? And there's some very, very easy ways. And one of them is just to ask, what are you most proud of that you worked on? Just some of these open-ended questions where you can give people space to let their passion show through and let their confidence show through. Um, so I always ask, what are you most proud of um, that you've worked on? And um, yeah, I don't know. That's my one piece of advice that we should be hiring for potential <laughs> and um, that we should give, we should design interview panels and interview processes that allow people with potential to get hired. And that, and that if we only hire people who have done exactly what we expect them, you know, what we're going to have them do, we're going to, we're not going to end up with a more diverse workforce. Well, yeah, it would be a chicken and an egg scenario. It's like if you would, you if you only ever hired for exactly what's already what what is already the market, then you'd be stuck at exactly the demographic distribution that we're at today. Yes, uh, and I think that I mean I certainly had a manager early on. My first job out of graduate school, I was coming from a PhD program. I left this PhD program. I had not at all thought about what um, I was going to do as a job to make money, and I got referred to Etsy someone from college I knew worked there and I really wasn't a strong programmer. I'd only done academic programming, didn't know nothing about web development, software engineering. I, I, I love and that. You have, you have a degree in computer science. Or it was one I, know, yeah, yeah, I went to a liberal arts school. I have a degree in math and I had a master's in computer science right. and I just took basically like, you know, complex optimization classes and stuff. I, I was not a good, you know, web, I didn't know anything about web development and I was interviewed for potential. I, I mean, I, someone took a chance on me. And um, and I think, I don't know, I, I feel that very strongly that like someone took a chance on me early on and have and have, people have taken chances on me since then. And, um, and I try to keep that in mind when hiring. I love it. That's such a great message. And maybe starting to round off the interview now, but uh, a question that I get asked all the time and you have some very interesting insight into, given your background, do you need a PhD to be a data scientist? Or, you know, is what's the advantage of having a PhD? And maybe even tell us about, you know, your decision to uh, be in a PhD program, but go into the workforce before finishing it. Yeah, so I went into a PhD program right after college. It was not the most thought well put through decision in my life. Uh, I was a math major undergrad and didn't want to do pure theoretical math, but kind of wanted to stay in this academic space. And this was 10 years ago. Yeah. So more than 10 years ago. So um, AI, the field of AI and ML has changed a tremendous amount since then. I would say, this is again, a very interesting topic that um, we could talk about for hours. If you want to be a research scientist, you want to be a professor, or you want to be a research scientist at you know very few kind of quote unquote pure research labs that there are, of course, you do need a PhD for that. Um, and if you if you um, love you know love it and are willing to be paid very very small salary for five or six years, um, but just you know, it's a chance to do sort of this academic exploration that you wouldn't otherwise get the chance to do, then by all means. But, um, you know, mo most kind of applied ML or data science-y type positions don't require a lot of the things that you would learn in a PhD. 
Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I have people with PhDs work for me and others who don't, and I do not give them work differently based on that. Um, you know, I, I, it, of course, the kinds of, a lot of the things in terms of applied ML that you need to be learning, you learn outside of the academic environment anyway. And so while it certainly isn't ever, I don't think anyone's ever going to say that it's a disadvantage that you have a PhD. Um, I think that it's, as you say, that the roles where it's an absolute necessity, like being a research scientist are, are few and far between. And that the most important thing is getting the experience. And so if you're interested in these things, you know, doing Coursera courses on your own on applied ML, um, you know, either before you start a job in data science or machine learning or on the job, any of this continuous learning is, is critical. And that can show just as much um, potential or even capability as, as having a PhD or more. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the right. And, and like, even if I had finished my PhD program, basically almost nothing that I would have written my thesis on would have been very relevant right now. You know, like the field has changed so much. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think, what else? Management, communication, writing skills, software engineering, data. Like there's just so much, there's so many things to learn. Um, if, if what you are really most passionate about is, is the academic part of that, then by all means, but um, in the, in industry, there's, there's, you can shine in lots of ways. What a wonderful message to end on. Uh, thank you very much, Erica, for being on the program today. We just have two quick questions uh, before I let you go, which is, uh, do you have a book recommendation for us? Yes. Yes. So I've, I wrote down a few, but I will give you um, yeah, I will give you one and it has nothing to do with machine learning. I am Great. kind of a wine nerd. Oh, I, wow. Yeah. yeah. So you have for, for people viewing the, um, so we have, you know, most of our listeners, about 90 or 95% of them listen via audio only platforms, but I do encourage you to check out the YouTube, uh, format, the video format. It is a, is there a wine bottle over your right shoulder yeah. right now? This is... <laughs> Chateau Mouton Rothschild, 1988, which is the year I was born. My dad yeah. bought a case for each of us um, of our birth year. So this is a Bordeaux. And um, yeah, and then we open it, you know, on special occasions. And so I don't know when we open this, but I use this to order plants. Um, but I think <laughs> I love the bottle. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I thought I'd give some wine reading. Uh, a lot of writing on wine is a little dense and, and sort of hard to get through if you don't know a ton about wine. And even if you do know a ton about wine. Um, but there's a wonderful book called Bursting Bubbles, which is about the champagne industry mm. and the history of the champagne industry, which is fascinating. Um, champagne is really of, of any wine region. It's it's all about branding. Um, and mm -hmm. these chateaus and the region itself have developed, you know, People pay money for the brand in, you know, in the same way the fashion industry works and the history of that region, how it's played into culture and uh, what's happening. You know, there's been a bit of a renaissance in the last 15 years um, is fascinating. And I think that we will hopefully be drinking a lot of champagne in the next coming year as the <laughs> world becomes brighter and we crawl ourselves out of the pit we're currently in. And so um, 
if you want to learn about the champagne region before you start drinking a bunch of champagne, bursting bubbles is a great read. I love it that it's such a good recommendation and maybe one that I'll check out myself because I barely drink, uh, mm. but when I do, it is champagne. <laughs> oh my God, it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. And then final question is, uh, how can people get in touch with you? So, you know, do you, is there social media that you use or any way that you'd like people to get in touch? Sure. Yeah. I'm on Twitter. I tweet so, so infrequently, but it's one of my New Year's resolutions to be more active <laughs> on Twitter. So I am Erica Green, E-R-I-C-A-G-R-E-E-N-E at Twitter, you know, on Twitter. I grabbed that username when I was in college. Um, <laughs> and if you are interested in, um, uh, yeah, so you can follow me there. You can friend me on LinkedIn. I will accept. And um, yeah, and you can message me if you're interested in a role at Etsy. I'm happy to connect you with the right people. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Erica. Um, this interview has been amazing. I've learned so much and just really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, so, great. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much, and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, happy New Year's. Amazing. I learned so much from Erica Green in this episode, from the cool models they build at Etsy to represent both sides of their marketplace, to the machine learning operations and management best practices that need to be in place to allow efficient data science collaboration at massive scale. From the three critical areas of expertise ML engineers should be interested in, data engineering, backend engineering, and ML, to the relative lack of need for a PhD if you're going to be applying data science in the field. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and URLs to Erica Green's LinkedIn and Twitter handles, as well as my own LinkedIn and Twitter handles, at www.superdatascience.com slash 435. That's superdatascience.com slash 435. If you enjoyed this episode, kindly leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where you can enjoy a high-fidelity video version of today's program. I also encourage you to tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd be delighted to hear your thoughts on this episode and would love to respond to them in public. All right, it's been so much fun. Thank you for listening. Looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. Mm -hmm.